For the last 60 years or more, the topic of human sexuality and gender differences caused so much abuse, so much pain and embarrassment and division um, amongst humans in general, and also, I want to say, the Christian church as well. There's this deep-seated significance to human sexuality. Have you felt it? (laughs) Where it's something about who I am. It cuts to the very core of me and my rights and my abilities. And we've fought all sorts of battles to defend these rights. The rights of equality, the rights of gender expression, of sexual expression. And these battles have for some come with great scars. I need to recognize that. Great hurt has come fighting these, these battles. But they have come with an even greater victory. A world that looks a lot more fair in some circumstances. A world that holds to the equality of man and woman. And we've also seen a world that looks a lot more symmetrical in opportunity, in education, in leadership and in life. From the standpoint of this world that we live in, the world that we have come to today, the words of 1 Corinthians 11 feel primitive and unsophisticated, don't they? You hear those words and you're like, oh, kind of outdated. And if we're honest... (laughs) embarrassing. Just look, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 7. How do you feel when this is said? A man, in fact, should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory, but woman is man's glory. How does that make you feel as you hear that? Does it kind of stir emotions in you to say, what is this? Or look at the next one, 11 verse 3. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. What do we do when the Bible seems to clash with our very core of what we think about the world around us, with our own worldview? How do we kind of match them up? If you're anything like me, when you kind of read this passage, my first reaction is to kind of try and treat it like the awkward uncle at a party. You know the one, you want to shift him to the back room, out of everyone else's sight, so your friends and family don't see him, and you're like, yeah, he's here, he's at the party, but he's, but he's out the back, unimportant, swept out of the way. And we kind of want to do that with passages like this. You certainly don't want to preach on it. You don't want to kind of bring it up amongst your friends and family at their gatherings, or have someone bring it up at work. What do you think of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16? You'd be like, yeah, want to go to lunch? <laughs> we kind of want to move them away. Others come to this passage, like Dawn said, and see it is a pretty tricky passage. Uh, Not only in the way it clashes with our culture, but there are some things in this that are just really hard. What does he mean by head? Is he he talking about uh, men and women or husband and wife? It's the same word. What is prophecy? Uh, What does he mean by head covering? Is that some hairdo or is it something that you put over your head or some nun's outfit? Like, what's he going on about when he says that? And if that wasn't hard enough, you get to verse 10. And it's like Paul's gone, this is a pretty tricky passage. So I'm just going to put in one more to kind of make the level of difficulty even higher. And what does he say? Well, it's all because of the angels. And then just moves on. <laughs> You're like, what, what, what is this? It's a hard passage. And so some kind of go, well, it's, it's a tricky passage to understand. We can't really know what it means. We, we're a little bit embarrassed by it, but not as embarrassed as the first group. We don't want to treat it as the awkward uncle and just move it straight out the back. We want to treat it as the awkward uncle with a PhD who's got some really hard things about him that, you know, he's a great guy, but because he's so tricky, we'll still put him out the back with the other awkward uncle, right? We're not as embarrassed, but we kind of still are. Now, others, they they come along 
And they teach this passage, but they go, look, I just wish this wasn't here. It would be so much easier if this passage wasn't here. But my aim for us this morning is to do what happened for me this week. It's to move us from a tentative reluctance to accepting this passage into a joyful delight. To actually see how good God is and how great relationships lived out this way is. And come to the point where it makes total sense and we go, yes, this is something I can embrace. This is something I'm happy to live out. That's where I want to take us. So why don't we pray that we read God's word as God's word and remember he is God. And we would see the great delight he has on view for us within relationships now. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to this passage, we long to hear from you. And pray, Lord, that uh, your word would be clear, that you would be clear to us, that you would take anything out of the way that I put in the way of so many hurts that have been found and felt here. We ask we would see your glory and understand your truth and live it out in a way that makes you look good. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, Paul begins, and it's going to be a little bit dense, so if, if you need to stay awake and stay with it, pull out a pen as an outline. Uh, hopefully it'll be helpful. Uh, Paul begins by giving this unqualified praise for the Corinthian church. Now, that should surprise us, because this is the church that was probably the most dysfunctional church in the New Testament, maybe the second most dysfunctional. The Galatian church was pretty rough. But listen to what he says in verse 2. Now, I praise you because you always remember me and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. You're like, whoa, Paul, where have you been? You've not heard about chapter 5 and 6 and sexual immorality and one of you being proud that you're sleeping with your, your own father's wife, your, your stepmother? What is going on? This is a, a church that hasn't got it all together. They've got all sorts of problems with power and celebrity preacher syndrome and all sorts of stuff going on. That They, they love gifts and they want to seek the glory for themselves. But Paul still calls them God's church. He still calls them God's church. Back in chapter 1, he started this way. He thanked God for them. He says that they had been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. These are a broken people. They don't have it all together, but God has gathered them together and they trust in the Son. And he is making them more and more like himself. It's a reminder here that church is full of broken people like me and you. That God is making into his image for his purposes. But what's also clear is that God has a purpose for the church. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 26. It should be on the screen. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise from human perspective. Not many powerful, not many noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. The church in Corinth, like all churches across the globe, were to place their values in what God valued. They were to live as people where the world's values were turned on their heads, turned upside down so that the world would see what was seemingly insignificant and foolish and weak was actually God's strength to save them. God is on his mission to show a new world order, to show how great he is and how great his ways are. And the church were to be a window, a window into God and who he is and what he's done, a window into this new world order to live the way we were made to live, 
not the way we've stuffed it up to live as broken people who don't put it right. How they are to live is to turn the world's wisdom on its head. That's what the gospel does, isn't it? Early first century, there's a, there's a picture of a donkey. They found this, this graffiti. Uh, and it's a donkey pinned to a cross, a donkey's head. And it, it says, Alexemenos worships his God. It's graffiti going, you're worshipping a crucified Jesus. This is crazy. Paul says, we preach Christ and him crucified. Stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. So as we come to this idea today, we need to think, am I going to let my view of wisdom rule my world? Or am I going to look to see what God has to say on this issue? I'm actually going to hear Him and live out as a window into the world what the new order will be. Now, I think that's exactly what the gospel does. It calls us to live out gospel-centered priorities. And I think what's on the center stage in this whole passage is actually the heart of the gospel. Not some peripheral idea about the way we wear head coverings or dressing. It's actually the heart of the gospel is at stake here. And the key to understanding it all is verse 3. And what you see in verse 3 is order. Order. Have a look at verse 3. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. I want you to know, Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. I think if we understand this little key, we'll get the whole lot. And it kind of unravels as we go through. The order that's expressed here actually means it's impossible to reduce this passage down to merely just a first century cultural issue. It's grounded in who God is within the Trinity, within himself. Let me kind of show you why. As we understand that, we see everyone has a head. Every person in the universe has a leader of some sort that they are to follow, some authority over them. Everyone except the Father. God the Father is the one who is supreme over all. He has no other head. Everyone else has a head. Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of the woman and God is the head of Christ. Do you see that? Now, people at this point, kind of, they disagree on what head means. They come, head could literally mean head, like physical kind of block on your shoulders, right? Uh, they think it just could mean head. Um, some people think that it could mean source, like from where the, the source come from, the head of the river, the source coming through. And they kind of try and understand it that way. And others go, no, no, it actually just means the leader, the head, the authority over. Um, now, it's not the first. It doesn't literally mean head. Because men, uh, women aren't walking around with men on their shoulders. Like, I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Like, aren't you? You want to go? That's, a, that's one thing we can cross off. Women don't have men for heads. Okay, Check. Secondly, the whole idea of being a source, it could be that. Christ is the source of every man. Uh, The man is the source of the woman. That could work in that Christ, all things were made through him and for him. Everything that came into being came into being through him. He existed before it all. And so mankind, God, sorry, Jesus Christ could be the source of mankind. And then Woman, well, she was made from man, from Adam's rib. Adam could be the source of Eve. And so you're thinking, this could work until you get to the third option. And that's where it all comes apart. Uh, Could we say that the last bit, and God is the source of Christ. 
Now, all your heresy alarm bells should be ringing at that point. That God made Jesus? No. Massive kind of debates have gone on over this in, in, the, in the third and fourth centuries to say, no, there was no time that Jesus didn't exist. Uh, John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was God in the beginning. Jesus has always existed, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, is what the early creeds say. Now, can God be the source of Christ? Absolutely not. Because God is one God, three persons, and has existed that way for all eternity. So at that point, we want to go, it can't be source. It's pretty clear then. What Paul's talking about here is headship and authority, leadership, and particularly within the context of the church. Kind of a newer section that will start talking about how they do things in church, like praying and prophesying, um, like the gifts being uh, used within the church in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and next week, the way they do Lord's Supper as they meet together and how they share. This is in the context of the church and how we think through authority and headship and leadership within that. Second question to quickly think through, is it a man or a woman or a husband and the wife? Which one is it? Is it talking about men and women, or is it talking about husbands and wife? Well, it's the same word in in the original. Uh, The word for a man is the word for a husband. There's no distinction between that. And so you've got to work it out from context. Um, Now, I'm, I'm pretty convinced it's not just a husband and wife, because it talks about all authority has been all men and women. Um, Christ is the head of every man, not just the married man, every man. It's talking about headship in general. And as we come through, it just doesn't make sense to be limited only to those areas. You might want to think through that, but at least that's what it's saying. Now, let me think through why that's the case. I think there's a bigger argument for why he's not just talking about um, husband and wife. Paul does these three pairs in an interesting order. As you kind of see this verse, he has them in an interesting kind of way. Now, I I kind of like logic and flow and and clarity. And so if it were me, I'd talk about uh, God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. That's what I'd write, right? It just makes clear sense. But it's not what he does. He he puts God being... um, the, sorry, he puts Christ as the head of every man. So he puts Jesus over man, and then he puts man over woman, and then he puts God over Christ. It's kind of like the relationship between men and women is sandwiched between these two relationships between God and his people. There's something interesting about this relationship between men and women. It's as if the relationship between men and women are to signify something about the relationship between God and himself. Let me show you. The head of every man is Christ. Every man. Tells us one important thing, men. Male headship is always exercised under the headship of Christ. Male headship is always exercised under the headship of Christ. We as men, we are never autonomous. We are never free to choose what we want, to choose our own ways forward. We sit under Jesus He is our head. We serve him. We obey him. Man is never autonomous. He was created, you remember, to image God. Adam was made to be God's representation on the earth, to rule the earth uh, and to look after it as God made it. That was God with Adam ruling creation. He was meant to be an image, a copy of what God was, of who God is. 
And when Jesus turns up, when we meet Jesus on the scene of the earth, Paul calls Jesus the image of God, the exact representation of his being. Jesus images God. He is the perfect representation of him. He is servant-like and sacrificial. He serves, he leads creation as the ultimate head. Secondly, the head of Christ is God. This great leader in the image of God, who is Jesus, submits himself to the Father. The one who is equal with God, willingly submits himself. He has the Father as his head. And that in no way ever loses dignity or value or identity of who Jesus is. But all throughout Scripture, we see Jesus willingly submitting to his Father. Look at John 14, he says, Just as the Father commanded me, so I do. Submission is not a dirty word. Our culture has said, yes, it is. Submission is bad. Don't think through submission. Now, I want to say the reason we think it's a dirty word is because of the way men have abused it and said, no, you must do this. That's one of the reasons that that is there. But here, Jesus willingly and happily submits to his Father. It doesn't mean he's lost any of his dignity or value. In the same way, a woman's submission to man does not lose any dignity or value at all. The role of headship is a role with an equal authority. See, I have a friend. Um, This friend of mine um, was a a policeman. He has a role of authority over me. If I'm driving down the street, he can kind of put on the flashing lights, pull me over, and I need to obey him because he has a role of authority over me. Now, he's not more human than I am. He's not more dignified than I am. We are equal as humans. We are equal together alongside one another. He just has a role of authority over me. And if then he came to a soccer match and I was the referee and he was playing in a soccer match, I would have a role of authority over him. It's suddenly not like, whoa, okay, for a while you're more more human or less human because you have this role. We must separate those two. Equality does not mean sameness. We can have a role of authority over someone. We can submit to someone and still be their equal. Now, to our 21st century ears, that grates against us. It's just, it just kind of feels like it's wrong. But I want you to ask today, is it possible that our whole society has this view wrong? Is it possible that God's way is better than ours? when we find ourselves wanting to shape and mould God's Word to say something that it doesn't say, because it's clear here, is it possible that we are submitting to the world rather than to our God? See, whatever part of this we look at, Jesus has been there and done it and modelled it for us. He he lovingly models headship by laying down His life for His people. And He willingly models submission by doing what His Father says. It doesn't reduce your value of Jesus in any way, does it? It makes you go... He's the man. Look how great he is. He doesn't change his value or status. He is fully God. So what we see is Paul is saying there is an order. We are different. Male and female, we are different. Whatever gender we are born into, we get to be like Christ in some way. Now, I think there's four quick things I want to say out of this. Number one, whatever expression this order will take, we should see that it is foundational and permanent. It's grounded in the Godhead himself. It's not some culturally changing view. 
It's grounded right within the Trinity. Paul takes us right into God himself and the relationships within God and puts man and woman and their relationship in the center. I'll point through why in a second. Secondly, the kind of asymmetrical ordering of relationships in God's world is good. Submitting the wife or the the woman submitting to the leadership of the man is actually a way that God has made us to be that highlights the Christ-likeness of us. And the man lovingly leading the husband, so the woman, the wife and the woman, too many options, uh, is also pointing us to how God is. We must keep feminism's bad sides at bay while recognising feminism's good sides. Feminism has been so helpful to recognise the equality of male and female. It's been great. But feminism champions symmetry in relationships, sameness. We are the same. And we lose part of that great complementary nature that we're not the same. I am not like Sarah. She is not like me. And thank God for that. Imagine two of me. It would be awful, right? There's a, there's a complementarity to that. And, and within the whole human gender, there's a complementarity together. Feminism insists on reducing the equality of a person to the equality of the role that they occupy. Which I want to say means that a woman in a role that is authority over me, I have to say, is somehow better than me. Or a man that is in a role of authority over me is somehow better than me. Friends, the Bible is far more freeing than that. The Bible says you are equally made in the image of God. You don't need to, to equate role with identity and value and worth. Three, the gospel is countercultural. These sort of relationships are going to be countercultural in the world that we live in. They pinned our Saviour to a cross and nailed him to it. The one who created them, he sustained their hands as they nailed his hands to that tree. If they did that to him, then us living his way in the world is not going to go well and charmingly for us all the time. Culture, humanity, at our hearts, we're selfish. We're self-seeking. We, we seek our own glory. And you see that all sorts of distortions, which we'll see in a second, flow out of this with men trying to um, be dictators in the way that they lead rather than laying down their lives and serving others and, and, and women trying to not be submissive and follow but to take over and push aside and be better than and you see it come out in, in relationships, in, in life because we want ourselves to be at the centre. This passage, it's not about reverting to the 1950s. It's not saying we had it right then. No, it was just as wrong then as well. It's looking back to the cross, seeing the work of Jesus. Here is God the Son, who is made leader and authority over all creation by dying in our place and being risen again. And he does it by self-sacrifice. And he does it by submitting to his Father's will. The cross gives us the place that we can understand how relationships work. What Paul's talking about here will be countercultural in every culture. Not just today, in every culture. And that means, number four, living this way will make sense in every age and culture. Living this way will will show that we are people who live for someone else, that there is something else going on. Living this way is being a window into who God is and how he's related to us. It allows us, (laughs) allows God to use the things that are weak the things that this world looks upon as foolishness, to say, no, actually, this is strength. This is strong. 
It shows the very nature and character of our God as we imitate Him in human sexuality. But that order is not the way things are. And Paul speaks to this church and kind of highlights a couple of areas where this order is being distorted, changed. Well, there's a problem with it. And we'll see why that's an issue in a second. So look at verse, um, verse 4 of chapter 11. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. So if a woman's head is not covered, her hair should be cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her head cut off or her head shaved, she should be covered. There's this issue here with the way women and men dress when they're in the gathering as they are praying and prophesying. Look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man had long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. In those two sections, we see the distortion of God's order, a distortion that's going on within the church. One thing to note, the fact that Paul can move so effortlessly from explaining this eternal Trinitarian nature of our God and the the leadership and submission within the Trinity, the fact that he can move so quickly from that to what men and women do with their hair in church shows us that all theology is practical. That as we understand our God, it has practical implications for the way that we live out life. All knowledge of God flows out practically into how we live. God's commands, they're not arbitrary. They're not something bolted on the side, but they are connected to his very nature. To his very nature. So what's happening here is the order of verse 3 is being distorted. Just like it was in Genesis 3, you remember, um, God made Adam to to rule over creation and he made Eve as his helper to together, complementary, ruling over creation over the animals and, and the birds and, uh, and the fruit and all the things that were there, they were to rule together over creation. What happens? Creation, snake, comes and speaks to Eve, who tells Adam to disobey God. A complete reversal of the way God had made it. God gave the command to Adam. Adam said, he said to Adam, lead your wife to rule creation, and they don't. There's a disordering of the relationship that God had set up. And if this is about God and His nature not just some arbitrary rule, then it's an important thing to think through. So what's this head covering here Paul's talking about? How is this distorted here? Again, there's a heap of different views uh, on what the head covering is. Is it a hairstyle? Is it some material covering? Uh, There's kind of a number of different views there, but some people kind of take us into a whole first century context and look into what was going on and how head coverings worked. But I want us to have confidence that the Bible is all we need. It's clearly reflecting here the order of our relationships when we pray and prophesy in church. Whatever a head covering looks like, it's reflecting, trying to express that in our relationships at church. So to sum up where I'm at with that, I think Paul's saying, it matters how you dress. It matters how you look. You need to express who you are and the gender that you are. I think that's what he's saying. Paul is against cross-dressing. That's, that's kind of where he's at. Don't get up the front if you're a man looking like a woman. 
And don't get up the front and, and lead God's people, if you're a woman, looking like a man. Uh, express the relationships with the great joy and delight that I've made relationships to be. Stop trying to be a man. Stop trying to be a woman. Uh, men and women, by nature, look different. We just are different. Uh, there's different physicalities. We are, different, we are wired differently. Um, and the whole way that we work in terms of the human race to rule the earth and subdue it, and to fill the earth, we are different. Men don't bear babies. Uh, and we don't want to reduce motherhood to just some natural phenomenon, some biological reality. There's a great joy in that, that we want to celebrate. We want to celebrate the differences of how we are made. And Paul says, when prophesying and praying in church, we need to celebrate those differences. We need to be who we are. How that difference has worked out is going to be determined in some ways by a kind of cultural understanding. We're not really um, set that, that long hair always means that's the way a woman should dress. We're not really set that uh, short hair is always how a, a guy should be. I take it that if both men and women let their hair grow, they'd be the same length. Uh, and that together, we, 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 you know, our hair grows long. Um, some want to say that long hair is always effeminate. I'm like, you ever said that to a Viking? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, you're not going to last very long. Uh, some say wearing a dress is, kind of, is, is, is definitely only for women. But then you look at so many Polynesian cultures uh, and Pacific Island cultures where that is what the men wear. And so we need to be careful to come in with a one-size-fits-all application of this principle that is here. Cultural practices will normally be in the same vein as nature, how we are made. What's he saying? What's the result here? Men are to look like men. Women are to look like women. How we look may change slightly with culture, but not how we act. Not how we relate to one another. Now, we kind of sit here, or I do, and I'm like, I want a clear line. Tell me what this looks like. You know, should, I, should women be wearing a head covering in church? Should men, you know, where's the line on the hair length? When is long? When isn't? What does it look like? Should we put a hair up in a bun or not? What is the model of feminine look? What is the model of maleness? Um, but Paul doesn't give us that. He's not giving us a dress code. He's correcting a blurring of the boundaries within this church's context at that time to express the principle of verse 3 in practice through the rest of the passage. Now, there is a line we mustn't cross, and every culture will kind of instinctively know what that line is. I have a friend uh, at a previous church who um, just liked dressing up as a woman. Now, he wore a dress at night sometimes, and he was kind of like, is this right or not? And he was struggling with it, and then he started going, I'm starting to take hormone replacements so I can grow breasts. I'm like, there's a line here. Naturally, we go, there's something that's going on. He, He was married to a woman. And she's like, I married a man, not a woman. And it's just it's like, you can see the line is there to live as you are. And there's a whole swarm of brokenness that sits behind that that I want to recognize. Gender differences, gender dysphoria, uh, the way that we are biologically wired and a whole heap of brokenness that comes behind that can cause all sorts of different issues to come up. And we'll be having in November um, a sexologist, Patricia Karoon, come and chat with us a little bit about these sort of issues together, which will be a great opportunity. She's a, she's a doctor, uh, she's a great leader in this field. But I want to recognise that's there, I'm not going to go into it now, but I want to say we generally know what we need to do. It's so easy to go into cultural stereotyping, and we mustn't do that. You know, real men hunt deer. 
You know, real men drive Ford Rangers and have bacon air fresheners stuck on the kind of, just flap, bacon flapping on their air freshener. Like, that's the picture of the real man. No. Relationships and gender are expressed relationally to one another by the man laying down his life for others, leading self-sacrificially, by the woman respecting men and allowing them to lead. They're not expressed by some kind of cultural stereotype, yet the way we dress can affect that in church. And that's what Paul's saying. Why does it matter? Here's the important bit. Because the result of blurring these boundaries is shame. The result of blurring these boundaries is shame. Look at verse 4 of chapter 11. Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it's the same. Uh, And then um, verse 6. It is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off and her head shaved. She should be covered. Shame is what's on view here. And lots of people talk about shame being a sexual thing. Because to have your head shaved in that first century culture was to say you were an adulteress. It's to say you've been caught in the act of adultery. And if you had your head shaved, it was like that's who you are. And so people apply that cultural reality to saying Paul here is talking about sexual immorality. Now, while that's true, I don't think that's it. It seems to be bringing here this independence and this this living out of our cultural boundaries in the way that we want a kind of sense of attitude and independence. I can dress like a man. I can look like a man. I can pray and prophesy in front of church like a man. I can dress like a woman, look like a woman, and still do those same things. It doesn't matter. It expresses that independence, that I'm independent from anything or anyone else. See, I don't think it's social shame here. It's not about being embarrassed in front of others or causing embarrassment for the men or the women. I think it's the shame of a disordered relationship. It's the shame of a disordered relationship. It's not shame in the eyes of the world, but shame to the eyes of God. That as he looks at his creation, who he has made to be complementary, to, to image him, to be like him, and we don't do that, it brings shame on God. The church is to be a window that shames the world, to show God's view of the world, to show what looks like foolishness is actually wisdom from God. What looks like weakness is actually God's strength. The church is to be that sort of window. But when they do not do that, when we do not live that out, when we are not proud of the way God made us, we bring shame to God because we fail to show who He is in His Trinitarian relationship. They were acting in a way that was in line with the world and brought shame on God. Now, how do relationships bring honour to God? Well, they bring honour to God when order is restored in the church. Here's how he explains how these kind of work, how they bring honour and glory to God. He explains it in four ways. Number one, it's got to do with image. Number two, with glory. Number three, with interdependence. And number four, because of the angels. That's his reasoning. Let's have a go through those quickly. Image. In Genesis 1.27, God made men and women as an expression of his image. Just have a look at it. At 1.27, it's on the screen. So God made man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. You can see here that, that man and woman are in the image of God. It's not just man that images God. We are equal. 
Uh, We are like the two sides of the one coin, but he created men and women, male and female, as the image of God. If you take just one out, the world is not complete. For completeness needs to happen with male and female. Why is that? Together, humanity reflect the nature of God. Verse 8 and 9 of 1 Corinthians then refer to the, the closer account of men and women in Genesis 2. So let's look at Genesis 2. Then the Lord said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found as his complement. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. Finally, man sees one that is like him in the likeness of God. One that is complementary to him, where he's finally found this relationship. Man wasn't alone. He had the relationship with God, but he was alone in that he had no relationship with humanity. It's not until woman is created that he is then saying, here we are. We have relationship. We are now imaging God in relationship. Together, in their complementary roles, they reflect the image of God. They are not the same, but they are complementary. Okay, two, glory. What does glory mean? It's kind of a big word. We're like, ah, it's not that big, but uh, you kind of like, we use it often. It just means weighty and important. If something is glorious, it's like, this is is big, this is weighty, This this is important news. And so what we see throughout Scripture is that glory is something that comes when the truth about someone is revealed. So we see God's glory when we see how good God is in His actions, in His nature, in the way He he lives and works and all the things that He does. One person can bring glory to another. So in John 1, 14, uh, we see His glory. Look at this, John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and took up residence amongst us. We observed His glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. To recognize Jesus' nature was to see His glory. Here is the one who has come from the Father. He is glorious. He is good. He is brilliant. He is true. He is full of grace and truth. We can recognize His glory. But in John 8, Jesus refuses to glorify Himself. There is someone else that brings Him glory. Look at John 8, 54. If I glorify myself, Jesus answered, my glory is nothing. My Father, you say about Him, He is our God. He is the one who glorifies me. So here we see humanity glorifying God by recognizing who Jesus is. The Father glorifying the Son by making known who Jesus is. Jesus brings the glory of the Father to the world. He reveals the Father's true nature. And the Father brings glory to the Son, revealing the true nature of the Son. You don't know the Father except through the Son. You don't know the Son unless the Father reveals Him. There's a complementarity, a reciprocal nature of glorifying who each of the persons of the Trinity are as they glorify one another. Why is that important? Well, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 11 A man, in fact, should not cover his head because he is God's image and glory. 
but woman is man's glory. What's happening there? Man is made to glorify God. Men and women are made in the image of God. And as we act properly within that relationship, God is glorified. As a woman glorifies the man, and as the man serves God, she is served. And together, people see something of God. It's something into the very nature of what our God is like. God's purpose in bringing sexual order is to bring glory to Him, to reveal God's true nature. The glory of man is only seen in his true nature when he's contrasted to woman. And woman is acting rightly in relation to man. When a man and woman act as God has designed, there is God's glory expressed. Just like the way the Father and the Son bring glory to one another by the Son's submission to the Father, so too male and female relationships express who God is and who we are as we image Him together. What does that mean? We are interdependent on one another. That's exactly what Paul talks about in verse 11 and 12. In the Lord, however, a woman is not independent of man, and a man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from the man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. He's saying men and women need each other to glorify God. Most translations kind of assume that it's talking about childbirth here, uh, that a man born of woman, uh, she, he comes from her and so she comes from him, from Adam and Eve, from the, the rib and then, then it kind of this, this kind of pattern that goes forward. But I think it's talking about Genesis 2 and that description that Adam says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He recognizes that this woman is like him but different to him. And as he recognizes someone who is so complementary, he sees one like himself but different, complementary to him. And as he serves her and together they rule creation in their complementary way, God is glorified. This is how it is. It's serving of God is loving one another. Uh, Christopher Ash, the guy who kind of wrote the, the book on marriage, marriage is sex in the service of God. It's sex as we are living out this relationship of complementarity to one another. In Romans 1, Paul says homosexuality is such a clear form of idolatry. And for a while, you're like, why is that idolatry? Why is that kind of saying that that, that we are king and not God? I think it's because it's a rejection of the otherness of the opposite gender. And therefore, it's an an idolization of the self. I can be married to someone just like me. I don't need anyone else. The two men, we don't need women. We can be men together and stand together. And God says, that doesn't make me look good. That makes men look good. It's not about men. Or two women saying, we can be women together. We don't need men. We're going to love one another. How's that idolatry? Because it fails to recognize what God is like. You do need one another. The human race is dependent on one another. God's glory is dependent to some extent, on our expressing this relationship. The symmetry of homosexual relationships turns the mirror back onto ourselves as an idol. It says man can be satisfied in himself alone. Woman can be satisfied in herself alone. God says, no, you were made to be interdependent. We were made to point to God and to glorify Him. Well, the last reason, the angels. Yeah, who knows? (laughs) What does he say here? Really briefly, 
three times in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the role angels have in watching over what happens in the church. We'll write them down, check them out later. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, 6, 3, and 13, 1. 4, 9, 6, 3, 13, 1. What I think is happening here is Paul is saying it's important how you live in the church because the angels are watching. Again, it's God's glory. God is glorified by the angels looking on and going, yes, how magnificent is this God who made us too, who is actually doing what he said he would do and seeing people act in his way. When we prophesy and pray, we must respect God's order in the church because there's more than just us watching. There's more than just the world watching. There's a whole heavenly realm that God wants to say, man, that God is good. Because the angels are watching, it's important to live out God's way. For them and for us, this order is always going to see abnormal to the world around us. It's going to run against the grain of culture. Ever since that distortion of world order that happened in Genesis 3, to live this out is going to look different. But so it should. For this is what our God is like. This is who He is in and of Himself. We are made to be a church that windows into His glory, life to the glory of God. So how do we apply that then? Well, I think we actually need to come to passages like this with great joy. We need to be cautious not to take on the cultural kind of distortions where men have made women submit. Nowhere does it command a man to make a woman submit. Nowhere does it command um, a a woman to make a man love or lay down his life. No, we're to take them on ourselves. But we can do this with joy as we look to our God. As we look at Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and earth. It's been given to him, and he gives it up for us. He came down and gave up his life. What a leader he is. Men, look to that model of leadership and lead. Lay down your life. Look at God's word. Let God's word drive you to say, I'm going to serve others in their love and knowledge of God. Don't be on the back foot. Don't be like, oh, it's, it's my wife's job to chase this up. It's not. It's yours. It's hers too. But you need to lead by laying down your life, giving up your Xbox, your TV watching, your bacon chewing, whatever it is. Men, be like Christ. Lay down your lives. Women, be like Christ. Submit to the loving leadership of the men in the roles God has put them in within the church and within marriage. We need to express this image of God in complementarity with joy and delight and saying we are glorifying God as we do this, as we carefully love one another without diminishing the value of one another, but seeing the great joy God has given us. I got... um, Really, a really helpful talk on this by a guy um, called Rudy. And um, he, he gave this illustration that was from the UK. I say that so it, it doesn't make you think I'm into ballroom dancing in the UK. But in, in the UK, the Ballroom Dancing Society recently made a publication. You're like, wow, okay. Uh, it banned same-sex couples from competing. It caused a bit of a stir when that went on. But they said it's got nothing to do with ethics. It's got nothing to do with morality. They were all for same-sex marriage and all for homosexuality. It's got nothing to do with that. They said that you cannot ballroom dance, though, with two men or two women. It just doesn't work. 
They explain that ballroom dancing is about contrast, one lighter than the other, one, one light, one strong, one leading, one being led, one lifting, the other being lifted. They explain very clearly that ballroom dancing is about complementarity, about how the two forms of male and female work together to dance, one leading the other. That's what it is about. It's about differentiation and asymmetry which leads to a beautiful unity, quote, unquote. Sometimes it's funny how the world around us can point to something that we miss, that God has made us for an asymmetrical complementarity, where we might lead and love one another in a way that brings glory to God. Our role is to make the dance of life look glorious as people see us, They see the God who made us. Well, if you've got questions, I'd love you to come and have a chat with me afterwards. I was going to do question time, but I'm out, uh, and probably so are you. Uh, So why don't we pray together now and ask God to help us to glorify Him as we try and understand what He's saying to us here. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank You so much that You have revealed Yourself in Your Son. We want to thank You that we've seen clearly who Jesus is and what He has done, and that In Jesus and the way he relates to you as father and the way you glorify him as son, we get a glimpse of what true humanity is to be like. We pray, Lord, we would let your word lead us, not the culture around us, not our own preconceived ideas, but we would come to hear you speak clearly. We pray your spirit would keep molding and shaping us to trust you and serve you in this. And we pray, Lord, that as people see this, They would see the rich joy and love and compassion that comes from biblical complementarity. And they might see the wonderful God that you are. We pray this so that your son may be glorified and people may see you as you are. Amen.